phrase, some little inkling of, of positive comment that Paul is making, and you won't find it in there. The only praise you're going to find is when he praises the Galatians for the way they used to be when he first started the church. He said, you guys were willing to, to, take, to pluck out your eye from me. <laughs> what happened? He goes back to the way they used to be, but not the way they are right now. And what's really interesting is this. When the gospel establishes us in Jesus Christ, we are willing to give everything for Jesus. That's one of the evidences that the gospel's in our hearts. When we lose the gospel, we become a little bit more selfish, self-focused. The gospel frees us up to love and to give the way that God loves and gives. So you can identify the influence of the gospel in your own life and how you interact with and how you relate to the world around you. The Galatians had started becoming very protective, very self-focused. And this was an indication that they had lost that first love, that, that gospel fervor that, that Paul had established them in when he first preached to them. So the Galatian believers who accepted these false teachings were in grave danger because the very foundation of their faith was being attacked. So this is why Paul's epistle is so strong. You could call his letter a fighting letter. Paul is fighting for the faith that he had delivered there to the church. All right, what about the confusion? What was the confusion that was taking place in Galatia? Well, today, you know, many Christian denominations, if you look at it, have fallen into the same trap that the Galatians Christians fell into. It's, it's really a subtle form of, form of legalism, okay? So it confuses the gospel with the fruits of the gospel, what the gospel produces. And it is, it's difficult for us. It's difficult for us to separate the gospel and the fruit of the gospel. Because on the one hand, you have people that say, I believe Jesus saved me, I believe in his righteousness, I accept him as my savior, and it doesn't matter how I live. I can just do as I please. There's no fruit. And the other hand, you have people say, well, I believe Jesus and I believe that he saves me and therefore you've got to keep the law and you've got to do what's right and you've got to live what's right. And if you don't do that, you're not saved. And that almost makes our living part of the gospel of how we're saved. Those are the two extremes. And what Paul was preaching when he was teaching was we are saved wholly and completely in the living and the dying of Jesus, full stop. That's the gospel. Now, that gospel will actually transform your lives. I'm saying this again, and I'm going to probably say it over and over again as we go through this series in Galatians, so that you live a life now that is completely different because you have been saved by the doing and dying of Jesus. And that life testifies to the fact that you accept the gospel. But they're two different things. One is the gospel, and one is the fruit of the gospel. So Paul here is trying to identify the confusion that's taken place. And I think even in you know, 21st century Christianity, there's a lot of confusion about the gospel and the fruit of the gospel. So, so Paul's Galatia letter is a New Testament declaration of the Emancipation Proclamation, of the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. That's why later on in the letter he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. Because the only way we can be free is to understand the gospel that he was preaching here in Galatia. It's, it's probably the strongest, I'd say, the strongest document in all of Scripture that identifies this message of justification by faith alone. 
Justification by faith alone. And, and we understand that to be basically the three angels' messages. We believe this to be the final message that's to go to all the world, the everlasting gospel. So then Galatia is really a powerful discussion of the most important subject in Scripture, Christian faith, salvation by faith in Christ alone. That's what the book of Galatians is all about. That's what it's all about. And there's been a lot of controversy over this book, even in our church. We've talked about the law in Galatians, Galatians, and is it the moral law or is it the ceremonial law? And some of the brethren said it's the ceremonial law. And Jones and Wagner came across, came along, and they said, no, it includes the moral law. And there was a big blow-up and a discussion in 1888. This is some of our history. So there is some confusion here about this, this book and what it's teaching. So what is this, how does this bring us to our need today? What is our need today, right now, right here, in this church today? What is our need? Well, I think in this epistle of, of, to the Galatians, Paul is dealing with issues that are far from being dead to us today. Today, like in every age, the enemy of souls has sought to destroy the purity of the gospel, to confuse it in our brains. He's, to, he's tried to destroy our joy, our salvation that comes through understanding the gospel. And I remember, so probably it's been a few years ago, uh, ago, there was a book that was printed, and this book was entitled, Who's Got the Truth? And it had five prominent Adventist preachers, teachers, theologians, and all of them, according to this author, had a different take on the gospel. <laughs> He's like, who's got the truth? Because they're all different. And he was interacting with them all and trying to come to a place of understanding. So I wouldn't say that, that the gospel has been perverted, you know, there's one or... I'd say Satan comes in and he gives various different takes on the gospel. Different gospels are coming in to the Christian church. And that's why I think one reason why we have so many different denominations and also why there are so many different opinions among us. So we need to go back to the Bible. What does the Bible teach about the gospel? So let's look at some history. You know, Paul was converted probably shortly after Stephen died in A.D. 34. He was there holding the coats of those who were stoning him to death, and then he went to the leaders and he said, give me papers and I'll go down and I'll persecute. And he started persecuting the church all over the place, and he was going down to Damascus, and on his way to Damascus, of course, Jesus comes to him in that bright light, and he's thrown off his horse, and the Lord says to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he says, who art thou, Lord? And he goes through this miraculous conversion experience. And from that time, his ministry continued on probably into, they say he died in his 60s, probably in AD 60s somewhere. So 34, 44, 54, 64, probably about 30 years, give or take. That was the lifespan of his ministry, of Paul's ministry. So um, the church in Galatia was probably one of the earlier churches in the first 10 years of his ministry, somewhere in there, maybe in the early 50s, when this church was established. By this time, Paul had been, become known as a preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles. And a lot of the Gentiles, of course, really rejoiced when Paul came to town. They were really happy. But some of the Jewish brethren, now what I mean by that is I'm not talking about Jews. They also were upset with Paul. The Jews who weren't Christians, but there were Jewish brethren who had become Christians. And that's the phrase that we use for Judaizers. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. Some of them were not so happy with Paul because they were concerned about these ceremonial laws and the idea of salvation being solely in the doing and dying of Jesus. 
So it was after Paul left Galatia, he'd established a church, he left Galatia, that the false teachers infiltrated the church. That's what they did. They waited till he left. They wouldn't dare confront the church or, or deal with him face to face. They would, because Paul was a powerful preacher. And he could, he could just, he was so gospel savvy and so saturated in the gospel of Jesus Christ that he would not budge. And he was, he was raised, uh, Epicurean, he was raised as a debater, as a, as a powerful theologian. He knew history, he knew scripture, he knew philosophy. And so this, he was a learned man. And he could just put you down in a second. Now, I know that he was also a converted man, so it wasn't his tendency to put people down. But when it came to the gospel, he didn't mess around. The gospel was not something that he was willing to compromise in any way. So, so they would come in, and, and they were, were trying to, to add to the gospel things that Paul knew shouldn't be there. And as soon as Paul received the news, he wrote this letter to the Galatians. So our first study is going to be covering the main theme of this epistle. And there are two things that Paul deals with in the first ten verses. This is what we're going to look at this morning, the first ten verses. And the two things that he deals with in these first ten verses are his apostolic authority. By the way, he begins the letter with that. He doesn't even begin the letter with the grace of God. He begins the letter with his apostolic authority. Because they are seeking to say he doesn't really have authority. You know, he wasn't one of the apostles. You know, there were 12 apostles and one kind of went away and then they anointed another one, Matthias. And Paul just is kind of coming in here. He's kind of a renegade. He's not one of the apostles. We need to go to the apostles, not to Paul. So he's trying to establish his apostolic authority, which is going to be really interesting to look at this. And then uh, he also is dealing with the gospel itself. His apostolic authority and the gospel itself. These were the two things that he was dealing with as he was uh, countering these uh, false teachers in Galatians chapter 1. So now it's important to understand that the Judaizers were Jewish Christians who believed Christ was the Messiah. Okay? These guys were not unbelievers. They were not Jews. They were Jews who had accepted Christ as the Messiah. The Judaizers were. Okay, so Judaizer, the, the term is used because it ex, it's describing people who were Jews and wanted to get Christians to keep certain customs and laws and ceremonies that had to do with the Jewish tradition, with the, with the things that Moses had handed down, the things that, that were fulfilled in Christ, but they felt were really important. And because of that, they came, became a little bit confused about the place of the law in the gospel. And so they went a little bit further in relation to that. So they were fellow church members. That's important to understand. They rejected Paul's message of salvation by grace alone. They were counteracting the gospel that he was preaching. They were attacking his apostolic authority, and they sought to undermine his message. So they insisted that justification is not by faith in Jesus Christ alone. That, and you've got to understand, they've got to think of how they're thinking. Oh yes, oh yes, we believe, right? We believe that it includes that, but besides that, we must be circumcised, they insisted. We've got to do good works. We've got to keep the law. In fact, that was the first major controversy in the Christian church. This first major controversy in the Christian church was where the law uh, is placed in relation to justification by faith. And of course, we've been in controversy over that ever since. This was the reason for the first Jerusalem council, the first general conference get-together was not about women's ordination. <laughs> it was about the law and the place of the law in relation to the gospel. That's what they were talking about. 
So in Acts 15, you know, it, you'll discover that some of these Judaizers, they came there to Antioch, and they insisted that the Gentile Christians had to be circumcised. And you see that in, in uh, Acts 15, verse 1. And then um, they had to keep the law, and that's also in Acts 15, uh, verses 4 and 5, I believe it is, verse 5 maybe. And so they insisted that, that these converts had to be circumcised and keep the law in order to be saved. That's what they were insisting in the Jerusalem Council. That's what the Judaizers were insisting of in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 there. But Paul was there also. Paul and Barnabas were there. And you know what they did? (laughs) They they strongly opposed the teaching of the Judaizers. They said, no way. There is no way that we need to put on them this yoke that we weren't even able to bear. There's no way we're going to do this. So with that information, let's look in Galatians chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 10. Let's look at the first five verses, and then we'll read uh, the next five. Galatians 1, 5 through 10, or excuse me, Galatians 1, 1 through 10. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ, and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God our Father to whom be glory forever and ever amen I marvel now just just a little bit on these first 5 verses because they're they're powerful these first 5 verses are an introduction to to what Paul is about to deal with, and so he strongly emphasizes his apostolic calling and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, and he tells us what the problem is. He says, I am astonished, this is verse 6, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ into another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be what? Accursed. As we said before, so I say again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that, we have, than that you have received, let him be accursed. So he says it twice. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. So there are the first ten verses. And we're just going to go through these quickly together so that we can understand what Paul is saying. What is Paul seeking to communicate here in these verses? Let's go back to the first verse and let's take a closer look. And I want this section, let's just think about this section. To, I want you to think about the twelfth apostle. The twelfth apostle. Jesus called 12 apostles. One of them he didn't really call, but he accepted him, and that was Judas. He called 12. They were with him for three and a half years. Jesus called them, and he educated them. Those were the two ways that we know they were the apostles. I mean, there are other ways, but those were the two. He called them personally, and he educated them for three and a half years. Right? Got that so far? Fonda, you with me? All right. You're thinking, huh? All right. Paul introduces himself as an apostle of Christ. And he says, God is the one who called me. True or false? Isn't that amazing? Now think about this, okay? Because this is really important. Because an apostle 
means one who is sent. All right? So Paul is basically saying, I wasn't called and sent by men. I wasn't called and sent by a man. I was called and sent by God, by Jesus Christ. That's who called me and sent me. It was Jesus Christ, which I think is really interesting because, because Paul here is identifying, identifying himself as an apostle, and basically he's saying these Judaizers are lying when they say, I'm not an apostle. Now let's look at Paul's calling, okay? We find this in Acts chapter 9, 10 through 15. And you can open your Bibles there to Acts 9, 10 through 15, and just look at this. This is really interesting. Paul's calling, and we talked about the story of his, you know, journey down to Damascus and the bright sun, and he's knocked off his horse. We looked at that. But after that, what happens? Well, in Damascus... There is a disciple named Ananias. This is verse 10 of Acts chapter 9. There's a disciple called Ananias. And the Lord calls to him in a vision and he says, Ananias. And Ananias says, yes, Lord. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying in a vision. He has seen a man named Ananias, you, coming and placing his hands on him to restore his sight. So Paul's praying, and in a vision, he's seeing what you're going to do. I'm asking you to go and do the very thing that I've shown him that you're going to go do, right? So now God is saying this to Ananias because he knows how Ananias is going to respond initially. He's, he's telling Ananias, listen, I've already, Paul, I've already given Paul a vision of you coming and doing this. I just want you to assure you of this. Lord Ananias answered, We have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Ah, see that? How many times do we resist the voice of God? Resist the calling of God? We look at the situation, we think there's no way. That that just... that guy looks too bad, too rough. His, his reputation, his background, there's no way. But God is working in hearts and lives of individuals. And we need to receive our orders from God, not from committees, not from men, not from councils, but from God. God is going to speak to us, and God is speaking to Ananias. And even though he resists, what does the Lord say? It's really funny, not funny, but it's really emphatic here. Um, in the King James, it says, go your way. The Lord said to Ananias, go, exclamation mark. God can sometimes get authoritative with us. Go. (laughs) Go. This man is what? My chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. See, the Lord says here, he's my chosen instrument. That's what the word apostle means. The word apostle means one who is, who is sent forth. And it's a term that is normally used for the 12 apostles. Now it's used for others in different places, but it's normally used for the 12 apostles. God called the 12, God called Paul. God sent the 12 forth to proclaim the gospel, God sent Paul to proclaim the gospel. And I know you're thinking about um, this in the context. And what I think is really interesting here is when you think about it in the context, the disciples... After Judas had betrayed Christ and killed himself, the disciples were gathered together. You remember in the upper room. And they did pray together, and then they chose someone to replace Judas. You remember they went to the scripture and said, we need to write something. But how did they choose? They cast lots. Because when they prayed, two names came up. Like, oh, 
Which one is God calling? Is he calling Matthias or is he calling, what was the other guy's name, Justice? Can't remember now. Which one is he calling? And so what do they do? Let's cast lots. Is that how this Holy Spirit works? Let's cast lots. And you've got to remember, this was before Pentecost. This was prior to Pentecost. They should have waited for the Holy Spirit because as they went through the whole Pentecostal process, the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ called Paul. He said, he's my chosen one. He's the one I'm choosing. I'm choosing him. In fact, when you look in the Bible, you look in the New Testament, Matthias is never heard from again. You never hear anything about him. But Paul, he's the author of almost a large majority of the New Testament. He didn't write more words than anyone else. Luke wrote, wrote the most words, but he definitely wrote the most epistles. So the, the apostle called of God was Paul. Now, in verse 2, Paul says, when he's writing to the Galatians, he says that he's an apostle of God, but he says, and all the brethren and sisters who are with me. I think this is really important. Paul is not saying I was called, not just saying I'm called to God. He says, I also have brothers and sisters that are with me. I have, I have a body. I have a backing with the body. I'm not solo. I'm not independent. I'm not a maverick. I'm not off by myself. Okay? Paul is in harmony with the body of Christ. And we need to notice this because it's really important. The, the word brother and sisters there sometimes translates the brethren. And Paul wanted the Galatians to know that, that he was in harmony with the brethren. And he was in harmony with the brethren, both the brethren in Jerusalem and the brethren that were with him wherever he established churches. He wasn't by himself, and it's important for us to to understand this. When Paul establishes his authority, he says, there is a body that is with me. I'm not by myself. And we need one another. We need the body. We need to be in harmony with the body as God leads us together. Because the body of Christ is the family of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 1, 12 and 14, Jesus says, I have a body of believers, and I'm the head. When we're baptized into Christ, part of being baptized into Christ is being baptized into his body. 1 Corinthians 12, read it, and 14. So sometimes we say, ah, church, you know, who needs a church? Well, if we're looking at a church as buildings and structure and, you know, uh, uh, administrative authority, okay. But if we're looking as a church at a bo- as a body, with the head Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ communicates through that body to nurture and strengthen others, Paul can't get away from that. Why? Because even though Christ called him, where did Christ send him? To Ananias, right? And he said, hey, I'm going to have this man come down and pray over you. Well, that was part of the body, the church body. And the church body had to actually comply with the directions of God to go and do what God asked him to do in relation to Paul. So immediately Paul, while he received his calling from God, immediately he was introduced to the body of Christ. That's part of the picture that we see in Paul's ministry. All right, the greeting. It's short and it's sweet. He just basically says, grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's probably one of the shortest greetings we find in Paul's epistles other than Hebrews, where he doesn't even have a greeting. And then the gospel. And here it is again, and this is so powerful. In verses 4 through 5, we read these already, but again, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present age according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Now, this, these two verses summarize the entire gospel that we talked about. He gave himself for our sins. How did he give himself for our sins? Well, first of all, he died on the cross for our sins. And second of all, he lived the perfect life for our sins. We need both. None of us are ever going to be entitled to heaven because of the life we live. You know that, don't you? None of us will ever be able to say, hey, let me in. Now, there are some people that will try. 
They would say, Lord, Lord, open to us. We've done many wonderful works in your name. We've cast out devils in your name. We've done all kinds of good stuff. And Jesus is going to say, didn't even know you because we're relying on our wonderful works. And when you rely on your wonderful works, guess what you do? Two things that you do. You judge other people because they don't have the wonderful works you have. So you look down on them. And you become self-righteous in your attitude, in your spirit. You start trusting in yourself rather than in Christ. And so... Paul here is saying, first of all, he gave himself for our sins, and then he says, to whom be glory forever and ever. All the glory goes to God. See, another thing that good works does is it tempts us to take some of the glory to ourselves. And sometimes we do that. We glorify people, as if people were good and righteous, and things, people, uh, human beings that should be lifted up, they're not. So Jesus is the one that gave himself for our sins, John 6, uh, 3.16. And the gift of salvation is in Jesus Christ. In fact, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, it says, if we have Christ, we have salvation. If we have salvation, we'll have Christ. They're one and the same. Our salvation is in Jesus Christ. And he says, Paul, Paul repeats this over and over again, not just in Galatia, but all through his writings. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10, very, very clear. Um, also in Acts chapter 20, he talks about this, this salvation that is given us through Jesus Christ. So salvation is not partly of grace and partly of works. It's 100% completely by the grace of Jesus Christ. And that salvation produces, of course, these works in our lives that testify that we trust in Christ. Now, what was the problem? The problem with the Galatians was identified in verses 6 through 10, they were moving away from this gospel truth. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting this gospel truth. And you're going to another gospel. But, but Paul's statement, I'm astonished, he's saying basically, I'm shocked. That's, that's what the inference there is. In the, I'm shocked. I'm absolutely shocked. And then he goes on, he says, he says that you're so fr- soon removed. Now, that rendering in the King James is not the best rendering. There's a better way to render this. It actually should read, because it's in the, it's in the um, present tense active voice, Paul is saying here, you are already being turned away from the gospel. In other words, you're in this process of being turned away from the gospel. He's caught them right in this process that they're going through. They haven't left it totally and completely, but they're being turned away from it. All right? So Paul here, the essence of that he's talking about here is this, is this gospel of righteousness by faith, of justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Again, he repeats this in Ephesians. He repeats this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 18. He repeats it in, in Acts 20, verse 24. And then he identifies in Galatia, he identifies how the gospel is being perverted. He says the gospel is being perverted by believing that you add something to it. Let's look at it here again. He says... Speaking of this, this perversion, verse 7, which is really no gospel at all. Ev- evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Jesus. Now, that word pervert is a really strong Greek word. See, the Judaizers were coming in and they had changed the gospel from good news to good advice. From, from unconditional good news to conditional good news. And, and, and Paul, therefore, says this is a complete perversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have, yeah, you make it powerless. 
You undermine the power of the gospel when you add something to the gospel that is outside of the doing and dying of Jesus. When you add your works to the gospel, you undermine the gospel. Because the gospel is so powerful when it's, when it's in Christ that when you add your works to it, you undermine it. Because now you start looking at salvation in addition to what Christ has done in uh, relation to what you are doing. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to fall flat on our face. We are going to fail ourselves when it comes to salvation. Over and over again, in our thoughts, and our actions, we are going to fail. And therefore, our salvation, our uh, assurance of salvation is going to be undermined. But when you have a strong assurance of salvation, then you actually walk in a way that is different. Let me illustrate it this way. When they were building the San Francisco Bay Bridge, I don't know if you know this history, they had these tall pillars that they were establishing. And as the workers were going up on these pillars, you know, on that dizzy height, Looking down, you can imagine, I, I can't imagine because I I, I'm afraid of heights. <laughs> what I mean is I'm, I'm afraid of heights is as soon as I look down from a great height, my head gets light, I start spinning, I start feeling, I have to pull away. I just get a funny feeling. I remember hiking one time in some mountains in Colorado near Eden Valley and I told them this and they said, what you need to do is you need to get on the height and you need to sit there for as long as it takes for your head to calm down and then you'll be all right. And it worked. It took about half an hour. But I naturally just tend to... And so these workers, there was, and they were, some of them were falling to their death. And so they had to stop the construction on, on the San Francisco Bay Bridge and come up with a solution. The solution they came up, to was, came up with was really interesting and, and really simple. They built a net underneath the construction site. A netting. So that, you know how in the circus, some of those guys are swinging from... And if they come down, they hit this net, you know, catches them. So they have this net there. And an interesting thing happened. The incidence of falling radically changed once the net was there. Because the workers no longer were worried about falling because they had the assurance that if they fell, they had something that would catch them. And so now they could focus on working and not falling. And that's what happens with the gospel. The gospel is our insurance. Jesus Christ is our assurance. And we know he's there for us. And so now we can walk, we can work. We can without, but if you're not sure and you're thinking and worried about falling, falling, what if I fall? What if I fall? What if I fall? Guess what? There'll be more likelihood that you're going to fall. And that's why the gospel is so powerful because we have that assurance. And when that assurance, and see a lot of people, oh, you don't have, you do have assurance. The gospel comes with strong assurance. And we'll look at that as we go on in our study here. We run out of time, so I just want to close this up here as fast as I can. Um, we'll pick up on some of these thoughts that we don't have time for right now as we continue on. But there is one thing here that we need to look at, and that is the curse. So Paul adds this in verse 8. He says, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be under God's curse. Whew! And that word there is anathema. It means to be separated from God eternally. He's really strong right here. It's important for us to recognize how, how significant this was to Paul. So, and he's talking about anyone. He says, even if I was to preach another gospel, now think about this. Can, can preachers apostatize from what they've been preaching? Can they, can they be preaching one thing and maybe five years later or ten years later or fifteen years later or six months later, can they actually turn away from that and preach something else? Yeah, it happens all the time. It happens all the time. So Paul is saying... I preach the gospel, I'm so thankful that I preach the gospel, but if I came along back to you and I preached something else, let me be accursed. Don't listen to me, and don't listen to, even if it's an angel from heaven. You know, some, some men are so angelic 
in their words, in their person, in the way they preach. Paul's saying, don't be deceived, even if it's an angel from heaven. It's the gospel that you've got to be established in, not some person. Not long ago, I was, I was preaching a sermon that um, I felt was, was you know, powerfully established in the Bible. And someone took issue with it, emailed me, and I emailed them back, shared some inspired, you know, basis again. And they quoted back to me two quotations from men. Human means, mortal human means. One was a preacher, one was a teacher, uh, a professor or something like that. They were quoting me men's quotes to counter Bible quotes, (laughs) inspired quotes. And this is what Paul is afraid of. He's afraid that we would listen to people rather than listening to the Word of God. And that ultimately is going to be the test for us. Are we going to listen to the Word of God or are we going to listen to preachers? Because if we tamper with the gospel, we are anathema. We we come under the curse. All right, let's just summarize this. So, we saw first of all that Paul's epistle to the Galatians is his reaction to his astonishment of how the Galatians are being sidetracked from the gospel into something that isn't the gospel. Okay? And so he has, he's not, he's not angry, but he has an outburst, I think, of righteous indignation. He's speaking in God's behalf. God is speaking through him to the church. Okay? Now we notice at, at also that this, this outburst, this righteous indignation, is directed at whoever undermines the gospel. Right? So he's not focusing on specific people, but he's focusing on those who are undermining the gospel itself. And that's really important. And he says, even if they appear to be angels, whoever they are, even if it was me. And then also, we need to recognize that this epistle, we need to treat this epistle really seriously because this is Paul's fighting letter. He is fighting for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is not messing around here. He's saying this is important. Because, you know, we understand the devil hasn't stopped trying to sidetrack us, right? He's still trying to get us off course, even today. And we've got to be established in this gospel. And then we recognize, too, that the, that the people that, that Paul was dealing with were fellow church members. When Paul went to Jerusalem to talk to the brethren about this, they went also. These were members of the same church. This was within the church. Okay? And these guys came together. And, you know, you read this in Acts chapter 15. We didn't look at the verses, but it says here in verse 1 that certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers that unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, today we have that, for example, I think about the ceremonial laws. There are people who are saying you've got to keep the Passover, you've got to keep the ceremonial laws. That's part now of, being, of the package of salvation. There's all kinds of stuff coming in, 2520. There's all kinds of things coming in, adding to. But the, the most difficult for us is this idea of just the moral law itself. Because we all believe that God's moral law is viable today, don't we? We believe that. But if you add that to the package of salvation as a means by which we're saved, then you're doing the same thing that you Judaizers were doing. You're adding something to the gospel that Paul didn't add to the gospel. So... Now, you've got to understand, Paul wasn't against circumcision. In fact, he even had Titus circumcised at one point to break down the walls of our prejudice. And he definitely wasn't against good works, right? He says that God works in us, and that, the gospel produces good works. He definitely wasn't against the law, right? 
I mean, he's very strong on the law. It's established by the gospel. We keep the law. We won't even know sin without the law. But he's very strong on, but we're not saved by keeping the law. Salvation produces law-keeping, but we don't get saved by law-keeping. That's what the Jews got into in the Old Testament, and they failed miserably. So then when we read Acts, we realize that that when these men came saying that you're saved by circumcision, that verse 2, Paul and Barnabas got into a sharp dispute and debate with them. I wonder what that looked like. Because, you know, to be a Christian, you've got to be a nice person, right? You've got to be godly, and you've got to be graceful, and you've got to be kind, and you've got to have a good spirit. Paul and Barnabas got into this sharp debate and dispute with them. I wonder what that looked like. See, I think there's one place where we can be excused in relation to not how we treat people, but in relation to how we deal with an issue. Because this is foundational. I mean, I'm going to give people the 2520. I'm going to give them the ceremonial laws. I'm going to give them all the other stuff. But this, I can't give it to anyone. You can't. If you give this up, there's nothing left. Paul says, you're cursed. I'm going to say it again. You're cursed. He says it twice. So they got in this sharp debate. And because this was crucial. This was a crucial moment in the early Christian church. This was a crucial moment for all of us. Acts 15 was going to determine the future of the Christian church. And it did. In fact, they say in verse 10, as, they, as the Christians went through this, as the apostles listened to Paul and listened to the Judaizers and they assessed this whole thing, James stood up and Peter stood up and, and they talked. And of course, James kind of took charge here and they said, now, verse 10, now then, Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor their ancestors were able to bear? That's verse 10. Then verse 11. No, we believe, here it is, that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. Whew! I mean, there's a clear gospel here that's being deliberated and declared in Acts 15. A clear gospel. It's through grace. So, This we was referring to the Jews, and the they is referring to the Gentiles. We, the Jews, as well as they, the Gentiles, are saved by grace. You can keep the ceremonial laws, and you can be circumcised if you want, but that has nothing to do with how we're saved, basically is what they're saying here. It is through faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer today that we, as Christians, as a church, would never compromise, never get sidetracked, and never give up that foundation of Jesus Christ as our salvation. That we would stand firm in the liberty where we've been set free, and that that liberty would have its power, its full power and effect in our lives. We've got to go back to this book of Galatians, and we've got to study it earnestly, carefully, every word. Understand the history, understand the issues, understand what Paul was dealing with, and then embrace the gospel that he was proclaiming. Not only here, but in Acts, and in Thessalonica, and in Philippi, and in Ephesians, Ephesus, all of these different places, he proclaimed the same gospel, was dogged by these same people, but held up the banner high, was persecuted, and finally lost his life for this one true gospel, the gospel of righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ alone. How many of you want to say, yes, today I want to stand firm in that gospel? Praise God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your word this morning, we're so thankful for the book of Galatians, for the earnest, fervent spirit of Paul, for the fact that you called him as an apostle, that you singled him out and, and that you taught him for those three years plus in Arabia 
and established him in this gospel and then sent him forth to proclaim it to the Gentile world, to us. This is why we're here today, because of the words that you inspired him to trace and the fight that you inspired him to, to engage in for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for his perseverance and for the testimony he shares with us in these words. Thank you for your inspired word. Thank you for Jesus Christ. We put our trust in him wholly and completely once again. Amen. We do have a